0: This morning we will be looking at the end of the 6th chapter of Acts, the prelude to the great sermon of Stephen in chapter 7, which we will be looking at in the next few weeks. But if you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, we will be looking at verses 8 through 15. This is the very word of the true and living God. It is inerrant, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, "'Rose up and disputed with Stephen. "'But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. "'Then they secretly instigated men who said, "'We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God.' "'And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, "'and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council.' And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that You would illumine Your Word, that by Your Spirit, You would affect us, You would change us, O Lord, that we would be molded more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His precious name that we pray, Amen. Have you ever felt under attack? Have you ever felt like a bad day turned into a bad week, turned into a bad month? Have you ever felt that just as you were trying to do some things to serve the Lord, that the edges of your life started to fray? I can tell you I felt like that this week. I felt like that Friday. You've heard many of us mention our vacation Bible school and How blessed we were by it. And I have to tell you, quite frankly, that Friday morning was pretty bad. From the little things, like the projector didn't work, to the big things, like getting a phone call that Sandy and Dave Bergman's son, a PCA pastor in Florida, was being life flighted to a hospital. And there were a good half dozen other things that were going on things that distracted me, things that distracted John, things that distracted Barbara, things that distracted our teachers. And Even though I'm Presbyterian. Being Presbyterian is biblical enough to know that Satan did not want good things to happen here at Christ Church last week. He did not want children to hear the gospel. He did not want children and adults to be counseled. He did not want opportunities for, his word, for God's word to be hidden in their hearts. And so by every trick and slight and attack that he could manage... He tried to disrupt us. Maybe he's trying that in your life now. Maybe he's attacking you at work. Maybe he's attacking you in your family. Maybe he's attacking you in your health. Because you see, Satan does not want you to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not want Jesus Christ to be magnified. And so the attacks that you are under are to distract you and to dismay you. But I have good news for you in the midst of challenges. You see, what Satan means for ill, God means for good. And God takes persecution, He takes challenges, and He molds His children into the image of His Son. And He uses persecution as a megaphone to show the world what it means like to be a follower of Jesus. That's what we're seeing here this morning. We will not see the culmination of the persecution. We'll see that in a few weeks to come as Stephen pays the ultimate price. But I want us to see this morning the setup to this, that Satan is at work just as the church is having its greatest effect in Jerusalem. And so I'd like us to think a bit about persecution. It's sometimes hard for us in America, as blessed as we are. But I want us to think about three things. First, what is it that brings persecution? I think sometimes we have a wrong-headed view of that. We have a view that Satan puts in our mind. But then secondly, what does persecution look like? How can we recognize it so we know we are in the midst of it? And then finally, perhaps a subject that you have never thought about. The blessing of persecution. So let's look at what brings persecution, what persecution looks like, and the blessing of Of persecution. Beginning here, let's think about what is it that brings persecution. Oftentimes, I think our impression is that persecution comes when we're not faithful enough to God, and so bad things come our way because God is trying to slap us around a bit, get us to pay a bit more attention. But you see, oftentimes, in fact, most of the time, persecution and challenges come our way because we are obeying God, because we are trusting in the Lord Jesus. You see, what's happening here in the the broader context is that those who are chosen by God experience persecution. Those who are not are living a life of ease. As a matter of fact, that's a sense of judgment. Those who walk blithely through life not understanding that God's judgment hangs over them, but that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, those who do not know Jesus, they don't care what's going on in the world. They're walking along with rose-colored glasses. Perhaps that's the way you're living now. You don't think about the judgment that's to come. You don't think about the price that was paid by Jesus. But you see, those who have been chosen by God are affected by persecution. You see, God has done this here in choosing and shaping His church. Think about what the church is like at this moment of Acts 6, verse 8. It's probably half a year from the resurrection. And the church has been shaped by God such that they have His word. How, every other time we've do, dove into the text here of Acts, somebody's preaching a sermon. Peter's preaching. Pretty soon, Stephen's going to be preaching. Philip will do some preaching, then Paul will do some preaching. They have the word of God. When they are faced with a problem, someone says, well, I know what it says in the Bible, and they bring out a Bible verse to bear. They are steeped in God's word. We also saw that they are united as a people, even when they had a problem and a division. The church used it. God, by His Spirit, used it to make them more united than they were before. They're also very involved. They're attending at the temple. They're giving uh, gifts and support to those who are poor and without food. Not just the apostles, not just the new deacons, but all of them. They're involved in their community. And then finally, they are highly organized. That's the whole point of the beginning of this chapter. They want to make their mercy ministry better. They want to make their ministry of prayer better. They want to make their ministry of the word better. And so they get organized. They're united, they're involved, they're organized. We must remember what those of you who have served in the military know, that it is not sheer numbers that win battles. It is training. It is commitment. It is mission. Give me two dozen Green Berets, over a thousand guys holding a rifle any day. Because they're committed. They're trained. They know what they're to do. But the church is not the only ones chosen by God. Stephen himself individually has been called and chosen by God. He was one of the Hellenists. We know this because of his name. He would very likely, to most people, have been passed over. He was not even really, in some senses, a full-fledged Jew. So how could he be a Christian? He wasn't as Hebrew as Peter. He wasn't as Hebrew as James or John. And yet, God calls him to himself, and God equips him such that the people of God see him and see that he is a shining example of life in Christ. God has chosen Stephen, He has molded him, He has given him a heart for Jesus Christ, and He has given him a heart for Jesus' people. This is the setup here. But God has not just called Stephen to himself, He's also called him to service. He's called him to a very hard task. The church at this time is perhaps 15, 20, 30,000 strong. And they pick seven deacons. And Stephen is mentioned first. We might say that Stephen is one in 20 or 30,000. That is how he has been equipped by God. You see, it is God's choice that leads to the character that Stephen has. Stephen is full of the Spirit. Stephen is full of compassion because God has called him to himself. It is what God has done that makes the difference. And it shows in Stephen's life. Is this how you think about your life? Do you follow that great verse that says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you? You see... God seeks us and calls us to himself and we embrace Jesus Christ by faith and then we are equipped. God doesn't want to know that you're a great memorizer and so therefore he will make you a Christian. God doesn't want to know that you're a great singer and then therefore he will make you a Christian so you might sing his praises. God wants you and then he will equip you for whatever task he gives to you. This is what is going on. Being chosen by God invites or brings persecution. But it's also the character that comes from God that brings persecution. Let's think for a moment about what Stephen is like. I'd like to just list off five characteristics and think about how they manifest themselves in Stephen's life and how they can manifest themselves in your life. First, we see here that Stephen is full of faith. We see this in verse 5, that Stephen is chosen, chapter 6, verse 5, as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've seen this word full or full of before. It's It's the word that we get the English word plethora of. It's kind of a fancy word used maybe by debaters. Plethora. Or we might think of it as a whole big bunch A whole conglomeration. You see, Stephen here is full of faith. But being full of something in the Bible implies more than just having a lot of it. It's not that Stephen could stack his faith up here and it would be higher than some of ours. No. Being full of something in the Bible implies being under the dominion of it or under the control of it. So when we read in the Bible of someone being full of anger or rage you get the impression of someone who is so angry they can't see straight. They spit. They can't think straight because they are under the dominion or the control of anger. When we think of someone who is full of the Holy Spirit, we think of someone who is under the control of the Spirit. And here, as we see, Stephen is full of faith. That means that all of his life is under the control of faith. Well, what kind of faith? Well, we'll see in weeks to come that it is a faith that God, the Lord God, is sovereign. You see that all through chapter 7, in all of Israel's history, God is sovereign. But you also see it in Stephen's life here because Stephen speaks. He doesn't try and set his words up. He just speaks boldly. He says, I'm going to testify and let God take care of the rest. He's full of faith or trust in Jesus. He's also full of faith that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. After all, that's what gets him in trouble. Preaching Jesus, saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses said. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is full and controlled by faith. Now, we have to understand and realize that all faith in Jesus Christ is saving faith. Even if, as one man puts it, Your faith is as slender as a spider's web. True faith in Jesus is saving faith. But as we grow in faith, we are assured of our salvation. And that assurance is not essential to our salvation. We are full of faith and doubt. So many of us come to Jesus and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But you see, as God molds us into His image, He gives us more and more faith. It is indeed the gift of God. Is that how you view your faith? Is your faith something that you just do or give in a great transaction so that you might be spared hell? You hand God your faith, He hands you eternal life. Or is it instead a full biblical faith that says, All that I am and all that I do, I must live by faith in Christ. I can't get up in the morning. I can't work. I can't love my wife or my husband. I can't teach my children except for that Jesus Christ equips me. That's what it means to be full of faith. We've also seen that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He is under the control of the Spirit of God. We might think about it in the way in which a sailboat is pushed by the wind. You put the sail up, but it doesn't take its own shape. The shape of the sail is shaped by the wind, and the direction is shaped by the wind. We might also think of it as the way a glove and a hand work. The glove does not decide what to do and what shape it will be. It is the hand that gives it shape. And so when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we follow the directives of God. Our lives are shaped by God. And when we do... Satan is angered. He is not pleased. We also see that Stephen is full of grace in verse 8. He is full of grace and power. Now the interesting thing is, verse 8 really plays off of verse 5. We see that in verse 5, Stephen is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And now here we see that he is full of grace and power. Now I want you to notice that these things are connected. That we obtain grace by faith. Faith is the instrument that allows us to obtain the grace of God. Both are the gifts of God. But faith is that empty hand that receives the grace of God. And so because Stephen is filled with faith, he is also filled with grace. He has a sweetness about him. He has that word that we use all the time to convince others that as conservative, reformed believers, we're nice people. He is winsome that word that you never heard before you stepped into a Reformed church. It is a sweetness. It is a personableness. It is, we might even say, a charm. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. Stephen is very personable. We might say, with great irony, that Stephen is a a person who is very difficult to have a falling out with. You just like guys like Stephen. Now, of course, the irony is, that those who are opposed hate him to death, literally. It may even be that this is why they chose Stephen to work with the widows, because he knew the right things to say. He trusted in Jesus, and his speech was seasoned with grace. But he was also full of power, the kind of power that only comes from the Holy Spirit. And we see this here in verse 8. It is a visible, demonstrable power He is working, again, these great wonders and signs among the people. The word there in the Greek for among is actually in, in the midst of. They are seeing Stephen and the power of the Spirit in their very midst. If the Holy Spirit has control of you, if the Holy Spirit is equipping with you, it will show forth in power. Now, don't expect to walk by someone and have them stand up, having been lain from birth. But expect your speech to affect others deeply. Expect your counsel to help others in a very visible and tangible way. Expect your life to be a benefit to others. This is the work of the Spirit. It is real power that comes from God. And this power caused the people to have affection for Stephen. And that, of course, just gets the authorities even more angry. And lastly, we see that Stephen is also full of wisdom. We see that in verse 10. Those who oppose him could not withstand him because of his wisdom. And wisdom is an understanding. It is an ability that we get from God. It is what we might call the practical application of godliness. It is taking a godly character and making it practical in the lives of others. Have you thought about that? As you seek holiness before God, have you thought about ways to make that practical and applicable to others around you? Have you sought not just blessing in your own life, but to take the blessings that God gives to you and to use them to benefit others? You see, that's the kind of a person Stephen is. And if you have any of these characteristics in any extent, do not be surprised when Satan attacks. Because he hates believers that are full of the Holy Spirit, that are full of faith, full of grace, that have the power of God and seek the wisdom of God. He hates that. He will attack you. But what does this persecution look like? I think oftentimes we think it is only involved with what we see in later chapter 7. Torture, death. And so we think that persecution never comes to us because... We have certain freedoms in this country. We're not under threat of death as those who are in India or Pakistan or the Sudan or China are. But I'd like us to have a bit of a broader view of what persecution looks like. Because you see, Satan has three main tactics. First is persecution. Second is encouraging sin in the believers in the body. And third is dissension. He's used all three, hasn't he? And now he's back to number one. And persecution looks first like a disputing. Look with me here at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now you see... What Stephen was doing was having effect. The people were listening to the truth of the gospel. And what happened there was that those who were in authority now see Stephen as the prime threat, perhaps even more of a threat than Peter and John. And so various groups gathered together. Now, you need to know a little bit about the structure of a synagogue. A synagogue required ten males in order to be formed. And so it is said that there may have been perhaps as many as four or five hundred synagogues in Jerusalem. Here, commentators uh, are unable to pin down whether it is one synagogue or five synagogues or three that are mentioned. I'm of the opinion that there are three. There is first the synagogue of the freedmen, that is, those who literally were slaves and were set free. Those who were carried off captive to Rome as slaves when Rome conquered Jerusalem and were then afterwards set free or purchased their freedom. And they came back to Jerusalem. So we are talking about a synagogue of people who have a great bit of zeal for the Old Testament, a great bit of zeal for the land, a great bit of zeal for the temple. They came all the way back, thousands of miles, just to be back in Jerusalem. Then we have a a second group, the Cyrenians, which is a city in Libya, and the Alexandrians, which is the great famous city of Egypt, founded by Alexander the Great, near what is now Cairo. One of the richest, most powerful cities in the world, perhaps at this time the third most significant city in all of the Roman world. After Rome and Ephesus. They would be an African synagogue. And then there is a third synagogue, those from Cilicia and Asia. Now, this may mean nothing to you. I could comment that Asia is what is now considered Turkey. Cities like Ephesus are there. You may never even have heard of Cilicia. I could tell you a little bit about it. Its main city is a city named Tarsus. Does that ring any bells? You know at least one man from Tarsus, don't you? His name, of course, was Saul. Saul of Tarsus was in this synagogue, very likely. He would be one of the ones taken up to disputing and debating. He is a star pupil of Gamaliel. He is zealous for the law. So we might imagine in our mind's eye, it is very possible that as these synagogues raise up And they have a formal debate with... That's what this word means, disputing. A formal debate. Not the kind of debate that we're used to seeing, perhaps, in college campuses, which involves speaking as quickly as possible and throwing as many facts out as possible. No, the kind of debate that is involved to persuade others. Bringing out examples, interpreting the Old Testament. And can you see in your mind's eye, Stephen, going back and forth with Saul of Tarsus about the meaning of Isaiah 53, about the meaning of Genesis 12, about the meaning of the temple. And now can you imagine that at the end, it's evident to all that Saul lost, that he couldn't hang with Stephen, that he couldn't keep up with his interpretations, that he had no answers. Stephen is under attack from the best and the brightest But it's not just disputing because you know what happens when someone loses a fair debate. You see it all the time in politics. We then begin to sling mud. And it's all the better if we can find someone else we can put up to sling mud. And then we stand back and say, I didn't have anything to do with that. I can't control what they're saying about him. But you see, that's what's happening they're not only disputing with Stephen, they're seeking to discredit him. They secretly instigated men who said, oh, well, we heard him speaking. We heard him speaking blasphemous words. It is a a secret instigation. There is a technical term for this. Have you ever heard of the term suborn perjury? It's what criminals do when they make a deal or bribe with someone who is going to testify to get them to lie or to shave the truth. It's a felony. It's an offense in our system of law. And that's what's happening here. They secretly want people to lie about Stephen, to take him out of context. Have you ever had your words taken out of context where it makes it seem like you said something that was the exact opposite of what you meant? That's exactly what's happening here. We can imagine what Stephen is doing and what they could have said was, well, he is saying some new things. He's saying all of the promises that Moses gave us have come true. But instead they say, he's saying the things that Moses said are no longer true. They could have said the fulfillment of all of the sacrificial system and the forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus. But instead they said, Stephen doesn't have any more use for this temple. You see, they're discrediting him. They're taking him out of context. And then finally, when that doesn't even work, they begin to deceive. They have disputed. They are discrediting. And now they deceive. They begin stirring up the people. Look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. Now, you know as well as I do that the elders and the scribes don't need any stirring up. You don't light a match near an elder or a scribe, or they explode. I mean, they are so tired of this new way and this Jesus of Nazareth. But now, for the very first time, the people are stirred up. Now, why is this? I think on the one hand, we see that they are saying lies about Stephen. And so, if you ever have anyone attack you... Think about whether others have lied. Think about whether your testimony to Jesus is not being presented properly, but it's being twisted. But there's another thing I think that's going on here. Do you see what they're saying that Stephen is attacking? They're saying he never ceases, verse 13, to speak words against the holy place and the law. Do you know what the holy place is? It's the temple. Do you know what a good portion of the entire economy of Jerusalem was based on? The temple. The temple tax, the temple sales, the temple begging, the temple equipment, the temple service. And so now you see it's not just about Jesus and issues like resurrection or not. Now they're going to the people and they're saying, You see this guy? He wants to tear down this temple. Do you want to be out on the street? Do you want to be laid off? It's going to be the worst depression since the Babylonians were here. That gets people stirred up, doesn't it? I think it does. And they've got now the people stirred up. We need to be careful when money is involved because Satan loves to use money to stir people up. This is exactly, exactly what they will use against Paul. We will see. In Acts 21. Must have been ironic for him as he stood by and saw them say, You know this, Stephen, he speaks against the temple and the law. And in a few years, they'll say, You see this, Paul, he speaks against the temple and the law. And that shouldn't surprise us because that's what they said Jesus did. He spoke against this temple and against the law of Moses. You see, Satan does not give up. That is why we must persevere. The attacks continue. They don't stop just because we want them to. Stephen is under attack because he has been chosen by God. Because he has a godly character. And they have attempted now to do everything they can to tear him down. But there is great hope in the midst of this. There is great hope for you and for me as we see the edges of our life fray. Because you see... God will not leave Satan alone to attack us. God does not abandon us. The Lord Jesus Christ is our God forever. He protects us. And He is constantly making us like Himself. And so in God's hands, in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, persecution can be a blessing. How? Well, Briefly, let's think about two ways. First, persecution makes us an instrument in God's hands. And second, persecution causes us to be identified with Jesus. Persecution is an instrument in God's hands. Now, there's an irony here. In all of these attacks that are being made on Stephen, Jesus' message is getting out more and more. It may be twisted. It may be marred. But this is why Paul can later say in Philippians that whether from envy or spite, at least Christ, is cru- is Christ crucified is preached. Because you see, what happens is, when someone says, well, you know that, Stephen, I heard that they are accusing him of trying to tear down the temple. I heard they're accusing him of trying to rip out the law. And then someone might say, oh, no, 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 let me explain to you what Stephen said have you ever had opportunities like that to correct someone's misapprehension oftentimes those are the best ways to give the gospel because someone is not on the defensive they say oh he really didn't say that well then tell me what he said and and tell me what he really meant and they become then open to the gospel and there's a great irony here And Stephen now has a wonderful opportunity to bring the word of God to the entire community of Jerusalem. Now make no mistake, we will see it will cost him his life. But we will also see in chapters to come that this incident and this testimony will cause the explosion of the church. The church will take root in Asia. The church will first Find Greece and Europe, and the church from this point on will explode in growth. If you thought the growth was fast before, you ain't seen nothing yet. God takes this persecution, and he uses it for the expansion of his kingdom. You see, Stephen would now have an opportunity before all of the Sanhedrin to say, No, you're wrong about what I said. Every one of Moses' promises are true. Do you remember when Moses said, The Lord will send a prophet like unto me. Do you remember what Jeremiah said when he said, I will give them a new covenant and I will place my law on their hearts. Jesus of Nazareth has done that. Do you remember what Isaiah said when he said that a sacrifice would be given, that a servant, a suffering servant would be found, This has all found its fulfillment in Jesus. You see, Stephen now, because of persecution, has a megaphone to all of those who hate God. And we know for certain that he affected at least one man. And quite a significant man, I would say. A bit of a church planter, a bit of a writer. A man who would be so changed, he would take on a new name. You see, we know Saul, Paul was present because he stood by to take the cloaks as they stoned Stephen. So do not ever underestimate the power of a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know who you're speaking to, but it doesn't have to be crowds. It could be one man, one woman, or one child. Leave the increase to God. You plant, you water, let God give the increase. You see, this is what happens as Stephen is an instrument in God's hands. He is consistent. Do you notice the big attack they make against him? He never ceases speaking about this Jesus. The guy will not shut up about Jesus. What a wonderful testimony to have. That others would say, the worst thing about you is you never stop talking about Jesus. This is how we can be instruments in the hands of God. But that's not the only blessing. The final blessing is that we become identified with Jesus. There is an identification with Jesus. Do you notice the close of this chapter? And gazing at him, that is, Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, what does that mean? Do angels have certain color hair or certain shape eyebrows or mustaches? No, no, no. It means that externally... Stephen was showing the internal identification with a changed life. With the glory of God. His face was glorious like an angel's. Now, what did that mean? What did that look like? In the midst of all of this, the heated argument, the hurled accusations, the people in the back gathering stones, Stephen was calm. He was collected. He remembered the Bible verses that he wanted to use. His arguments were logical. He was fully trusting in the Lord Jesus. He was in the presence of God. And you've seen here before that Luke has a certain sense of irony about him. He says all that he had the face of an angel... There's really only one other person in the Bible described as having this kind of a face. Do you know who it is? It's Moses. So as they attack Stephen for hating Moses, he looks like Moses. He has the same kind of a face. God has put his stamp upon Stephen and said, this one is mine. He is like Jesus. Because after all, all of this message is about Jesus. What is your life marked by? Do you desire to have a face that is full of grace and glory because of the work on the inside that God is doing? If you do persevere, do not be surprised when persecution comes have every bit of faith and trust in the Lord God to carry you through and to use that to His blessing and benefit. This is how the kingdom of God expands in spite of, because of, persecution.